The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up. So we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, as the NFL celebrates Latino Heritage Month, so do we. We talk so much about the NFL's African-American history, few know its Hispanic roots. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. All right, it's Tuesday night. I got plenty of notes. Let's get it going. NFL historians, lovers of sports history. Yeah, welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals. It's cool if you already know this stuff. Congratulations to you. You know, cookies for everybody. But uh, just remember, there's always someone else who does not. This show is for those. It exists for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So I am here. We are here to do three things. Enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media. Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. That's what we're a part of. Go to our website, bellyupsports.com. Check out all the shows. Check out all of them, especially this one. And uh, you catch us on our home base of Megaphone. Of course, the favorites like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and YouTube. So real quick, you know the thing that I noticed over this past weekend, I'm probably a little late to this, but maybe not, but football season, Saturdays, it's all about Coach Prime and his commercials, and then the rest of the week, it's what, Sunday, Monday, Thursday for pro football. It's Travis Kelsey with a side of my homes. Am I the only one? Yeah, I didn't think so. So, anyway, let's get to the rundown. Look, the theme for week six, what was it? Low-scoring defensive games, if you missed them. Upset specials, if you missed them. Five starting quarterbacks get hurt. Yeah, not everybody's uh, going to be gone. Uh, but And nobody else is undefeated. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it was it was a kind of a crazy weekend for me. I helped a friend pick 10 college games and 10 pro games. And we both failed. Anyway, the rundown. Week 6, Thursday Night Football. That's where we begin. Amazon Prime, Broncos at Chiefs. Broncos lost 15 straight to the Chiefs coming into this game. Make it 16. One bright spot was that the Broncos defense was actually pretty tight. And, you know, if you've really been watching the Chiefs, they haven't really been playing the way that they used to. I noticed that about the Chiefs and the Eagles. That's the reason why they say the 2015 team the 2015 dallas cowboys the 1977 denver broncos the 1924 kenton bulldogs you know every team was different you know what i mean everybody doesn't play the same injuries roster turnover coaching staff could turn over it's, it's just different but the broncos who got the brakes beat off of them a couple of weeks ago it's football then they come in they limit the chiefs to 19 points Anyway, five red zone possessions, only one touchdown given up. But Harrison Bucker, he came through on field goals, including a 60-yarder from the logo before halftime. Taylor Swift getting in the house, sitting with Mama Kelsey, watching her boyfriend or <clears throat> friend catch nine balls for a buck 24. But at the end of the game, there was a split second there. And I thought that Melvin Gordon had returned to Denver, uh, you know, to fumble. But that was Samar J. P. Ryan, who fun with that ball. Chiefs 19, Broncos 8. Sunday, jolly old London, the last London game of the 2023 season. And the Titans would rather forget that. Ravens, Titans, uh, the finale, the Ravens won it, kicked a lot of field goals. Just too many field goals this year by the Baltimore Ravens. Now, as a Steelers fan, I mean, I love that, what, last week? Uh, and I'm really loving it throughout the season. I would really love it the next time we play. Just kick field goals. Let us score the touchdowns, and hopefully we can go ahead and win some games. All right, that's my Steelers plug for the day. I, I was explaining to a buddy um, yesterday that just seems like, you know, they're still kind of working on that new Todd Munkin offense, that they're doing everything from the spread, you know, but, I mean, 
they're just not as uh what's the word i'm looking for they're not as cutthroat and not going for it on fourth down as much you know that that's the hardball that was the hardball way look uh, what i need you to do lamar jackson just make a play and he didn't always they're not asking him to do all of that justin tucker if you got him in fantasy six field goals and one extra point it's pretty good pretty good the Ravens are four and two now but I feel like they need to figure this out before it gets too late in the season the Titans on the other hand they're now two and four Ryan Tannehill he re-injures that high ankle the same he got a high ankle sprain the same ankle that was operated on but a little over a year ago or so and uh, he stays throwing interceptions and this is I just wonder why it just seems I'm, I'm not in the locker room I'm not anywhere near well I'm, I work next door to the Titans facility but why it just seems to me like DeAndre Hopkins isn't the focal point of the passing game. I mean, there's got to be ways to get him the football. I'm just asking questions. And that kind of play from Tannehill, as well as Malik Willis, you know, I'm not a big believer in this guy. Neither one of them really, but it just seems like neither one of these guys are going to be around when the new Titan Stadium opens up. Ravens 24, Titans 16. Let's go to the uh the noon games. Saints, Texans, I'll go ahead and say it. It doesn't take much to realize that the Texans have their franchise quarterback. Period, point blank. And that's bad news for the guys here in Nashville. But honestly, I didn't really watch a whole lot of this game. And when I was doing the red zone thing, it seemed like it was constantly stuck on 20 to 13 in favor of the Texans. CJ Stroud, yeah, he threw his first pick of the game, but it didn't matter. They got the raw ball right back because the guy that intercepted the ball fumbled it. Then he turned around and scored on a Stroud to Dalton Schultz touchdown pass. That's good. But then there's Derek Carr. 50 passes on Sunday. 353 yards. Only one touchdown. And then he has the one interception, which came with 21 seconds left in the game. And I was reading a story later on Sunday evening that I totally missed that he was extremely heated. heated. He you know, snatches his helmet off, and he's upset because somebody didn't do their job. He had a, a nice little combo with the offensive coordinator, Pete Carmichael. Wasn't about Carmichael, according to Carr, but somebody wasn't doing their job. The defense for New Orleans, we know that they're good. The offense has some pieces, but it just hasn't been the same since uh, Drew Brees has been gone, as well as Sean Payton. And I'm sure Sean Payton wishes he had Drew Brees right now. Anyway, but New, New Orleans, they're now one and three in their last four games. Not good. Texas 20, Saints 13. And speaking of quarterbacks, commanders at Falcons, uh, some of these guys that may not be with their teams much longer, I have to agree with a tweet that I saw from Colin Cowherd during that game. For the umpteenth time, the Falcons had the football with a chance to potentially tie the football game. And I mean, young Hoku can win it for you, right? Uh, Falcons quarterback Desmond Ritter, he throws his third interception of the game. Kyle Hurd said the Falcons will be basically looking for their next quarterback in the upcoming draft. Couldn't agree more. I mean, the Falcons, if they're not running the football really well, they're probably not going to win. I mean, I was proud to see Ritter do what he did last year. But, you know, flip side, Falcons defense, they got off to Sam Howell, but he had a career high. Three touchdown passes. They were all short. Doesn't matter. <laughs> they won the game. And they actually, the Falcons defense sacked them five times. And Atlanta, you had your chances. Commanders 24, Falcons 16. Seahawks, Bengals. The Bengals kicked the field goal early in the fourth quarter for their 17 point. And it stayed that way until it was over. Geno Smith had his worst game in a long time. He's picked off twice. He sacked four times. They, they wore him like a jacket. And, you know, they still even with all of that happening, had a chance at the end to win the game. The offensive line for Seattle kind of opened up like the Red Sea, much like Joe Burrows does for him with the Bengals. <laughs> and uh, it, it just didn't happen. Sack fumble on the last play of the game, and that was it. Offensively, wasn't the best game for, for the Bengals and Joe Burrow. Burrow didn't throw for over 200 yards. Joe Mixon only rushed for 38. And back to the, uh, the defense, I absolutely love Trey Hendrickson and Sam Herbert. They always seem to be around the quarterback. That's key. You got to have a really good front. Seattle's defense, on the other hand, they did a pretty decent job. Too bad the offense couldn't do the same. Joe Burrow, he's going to love this bye week, him and his calf muscle. Bingo 17, Seahawks 13. Colts, Jaguars, hopefully, uh, you know, that passing play that got Doug Peterson's franchise quarterback's knee twisted, 
It's not going to have a long-term effect. You had three minutes left to go in the game. You're up 14 points. Run the football. They kick the field goal. It's dead. Trevor Lawrence is sacked and uh, twists his knee. Just one of many questionable coaching decisions made this entire weekend, college and pro. Anyway, the Jaguars, you know, they welcome back their old guy, Gardner Minshew, with open arms. And he said, hey, how y'all doing, you know? And three picks after, you know, against his old team later. I'm sure he wishes he never came. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, the Jaguars, you know, they got, you know, back from jolly old London and they did not lose any sleep. They got a W against the Colts, who won, will be without Anthony Richardson possibly for the rest of the year because of the AC joint he may or may not have surgery on. And then, two, they're building towards a 200-headed monster that's yet to surface, Jonathan Taylor and Zach Moss. Well, I mean, Taylor only had 19 yards, 8 carries. Zach Moss, 7 carries, 21 yards. We know they're both good, but the Jacksonville defense, they just was not having it. And like I said, three, Gardner Minshew, you know, with the three picks, that's not going to help the Colts. Uh, Jaguars, 37, Colts, 20. Panthers, Dolphins, simply put, I missed most of the first half of this game. But when I did look into it earlier, Carolina was up 14 to zip in the first quarter. Then Mike McDaniel hit the turbo button on his controller, and the Dolphins went on to score. Uh, <laughs> they went on a scoring spree. They outscored the Panthers 42 to 7. You do the math. Raheem Mostert, buck 15, he scores three times, twice on the ground. Tariq Hill, he's doing backflips with a cell phone in his hand, recording himself. I mean, come on. I mean, he, I mean, he gave us all a scare when he pulled up a little lame. It was cramps and not Justin Jefferson hamstring. So, I mean, it was great. The Panthers, and they need that bye week really, 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 really bad. Dolphins, 42. Panthers 21. Vikings, Bears, my best friend, one of my best friends, my brother, Byron Bolter, shout out to you, you know, Chicago Bears fan. Yeah, the Bears suck again. I mean, it's just not looking good right now. Very interesting that in the Minnesota Vikings, two wins, Kirk Cousins has thrown for less than 200 yards. That might have worked against the Bears on Sunday, and that's not going to cut it going forward. No Justin Jefferson. Let's just be real. They were playing the Bears, and I mean, and I think, though, the Bears probably win this game if Justin Fields doesn't dislocate a finger on his throwing hand, pop it back into place, and he just can't grip, uh, grip the football. Maybe, just maybe. But he wasn't playing that well before then either. So, I mean, I'm just saying. We don't know how that game would have finished. But um, the Vikings, they had only 46 yards on the ground. They couldn't run the ball. 200 yards of offense. Two of 13 on third down. But they somehow, someway got it done. <laughs> it kind of helps again with Justin Fields is gone. Vikings 19, Bears 13. Now, the two last undefeated teams in the league, Larry Zonka and the rest of his 72 Dolphins that are left, they are waiting to pop a court, right? 49ers, Browns, Eagles, Jets. You got to the 49ers, the Eagles. Uh, 49ers favored by nine and a half. Eagles, six and a half. Well... 49ers and Browns, San Francisco, they took a 10-0 lead early on. I'm thinking just like you're thinking. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. Same thing. I was thinking after the pregame brouhaha between the two teams that both Trent Williams and Debo Samuel would get hurt. I was thinking that. I was also thinking the same thing as you with Christian McCaffrey. Oh, he'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Williams did return. The other two, negative Ghost Rider. They both tried. They did. Uh, Brock Purdy, he's without two of his best weapons. And for some reason, George Kittle only catches one pass. Yeah, yeah. The Browns still without Deshaun Watson. They activate P.J. Walker off the practice squad. They start him in front of uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, at quarterback. He has a little bit more, let's just say, experience. Yes, he does. And even though he threw two picks, P.J. Walker, the Browns' offense had more total yards first downs and they held the ball they possessed the ball more than San Francisco and let's just be real that Cleveland Browns defense is every bit as lethal as San Francisco's it really is they've been talking about it since before preseason began during the offseason okay one of the best defenses in the league fourth quarter you know with the aid of some penalties Cleveland they take the lead and then Purdy he did his job got his squad even though he stunk most of the game in terrible weather 
he got his guys down there, and I'm sure pretty Jim Harbaugh was. Um, he was watching his former kicker miss that 41 yarder with six seconds remember, uh, remaining with his former team. Uh, first loss for San Francisco. First loss for Brock Purdy. Browns 19, 49ers 17. Eagles Jets had no idea. The Eagles had never lost to the Jets in the history of their franchise. Had no idea. But it was all about the New York Jets defense. No Sauce Gardner, and the other corner was gone too. But yet, I mean, they, they got the job done, and then some. They forced the Eagles to be one-dimensional, one-dimensional. It felt like the score was 14 to 12 forever. Jets defense, zero points allowed on the last seven Eagles drives. The key, four turnovers, including three interceptions from Jalen Hurst. They made him throw the football more than usual. Zach Wilson played well, pretty well again. Uh, didn't have a touchdown pass, but Reese Hall, he didn't run but for 39 yards, but he had a game-winning touchdown run that finished the Eagles. Oh, the great thing, uh, you know, like I said, they by the way that they put the defense together and got that W against the Eagles, you know, I mean, that helps that they were at home. <laughs> you had to love what Robert Salah had to say is that about the quarterbacks that they played. I mean, agree or disagree, but he says what? We've embarrassed other quarterbacks. <laughs> so, hey, look, I mean, they got a great defense as well. They really do. Jets 20, Eagles 14, Patriots uh, Raiders, somewhat of a Patriots reunion. Belichick versus Josh Daniels, Jacoby Myers, and Jimmy Garoppolo. The latter whom left the game with a back injury, gone to the hospital, not great. Another former Patriot, Brian Hoyer, 15 years. But he finishes the game. The Raiders finally get Michael Mayer involved in the passing game. I always thought he was the best tight end in the draft. Why aren't you throwing this guy the ball? And, uh, you know, Josh Jacobs, 77 yards rushing. And the defense was constantly in Mac Jones's lap. While I'm on the Patriots offense, they stink. They, they stink. It's not all Mac Jones's fault. Offensive line stinks. There's no weapons. And Stevenson is not being able to run the football. So I don't know if that's a Stevenson problem or if that's a offensive line problem. But you got a guy that was, I mean, <laughs> we, we, we've got a vanilla offense on top of that with Bill O'Brien. It's just not working out. It's just not working out. They're terrible. Uh, so, you know, in my opinion, uh, it's just more fact, though, than opinion. And the guy that's responsible for building this team, Bill Belichick, has been outscored in the first two games, well, the last two games, 72 to 3, and then make that 93 to 20. McDaniels is 9 3 and now 3 and 0 against Bill. New England is 1 to 5. Right now, the worst start since 1995. Raiders 21, Patriots 17. Lions, Buccaneers. So I got David Montgomery on my fantasy team. He goes down. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, before the second quarter gets going good, we already knew uh, Jameer Gibbs was out because of a hamstring. Third string running back, he leads Detroit with rut in rushing with, what, 15 yards? No problem. Armin Ross St. Brown, he's back after missing last week. He catches 12 passes, uh, and uh, Jared Goff was a beast. He throws for 353 yards to Derek Carr. He gets 20 points on the board. Buccaneers, all I can say, though, as much as people love those creamsicle uniforms, they wore those when they stunk and they were at their worst. And that, to me, is associated with losing. I'm, I'm sorry, I never will. That's why they lost on Sunday. <laughs> Lions 20, Buccaneers 6. Cardinals, Rams, it was the Kyron and Cooper show on Sunday. Cooper Cup scores his first touchdown, has another 100-yard receiving day. Kyron Williams, a career high in rushing with, what, 158 yards, I think he had? Cardinals are far no, falling apart, slowly but surely. It's not looking good. Second quarter, the Cards actually had a 9-3 lead. Then they went and got outscored 23 to zip the rest of the way. Now Arizona joins the likes of the Patriots, Giants, Broncos, and Bears in the land of one-win teams. Rams 26, Cardinals 9. Speaking of upsets, there was almost one on Sunday Night Football. Giants, Bills, Super Bowl 25 rematch. The Bills fans would rather forget. Uh, love those old Giant uniforms, especially those helmets. I, I love them. Bobby Okereke and Michael McFadden. They did all they could on that defensive side of the ball to help to, sh to shut the Buffalo Bills out in the first half and in the third quarter. Damian Harris, 
thank God he's okay. Had the neck injury. He's got movement in all of his extremities. But as far as the Giants offense, Tyrod Taylor, he gets to start. No Daniel Jones. He's got the neck injury. Saquon Barkley at one point had 12 yards on 12 carries. Finished with 93, though. Pretty good. But all of this, while the Giants D, their, uh, their offensive line, rather, they're missing guys left and right, and the guy that replaced another one ends up getting called from the practice squad that same week and gets inserted because another lineman goes down. And the Giants are a mess. And the Bills woke up, though, in the fourth quarter, scored two touchdowns, and that was just half the story of the game, them being shut out that long. But the other half is the New York Giants had too many opportunities. Right before halftime, they run out of time because Tyrod Taylor drives his coach absolutely crazy, calling a run play audible on the goal line with, what, seven seconds left to go? They had no time to do that. If he punches it in, okay, it's a good call. But you need to throw a quick pass. You could have had two plays out of that time. And maybe just one, and you kick a field goal. You got to come out of there with points. And the second one, well, one incompletion, pass interference. All right, let's redo it. Last play, incomplete, you know, going to Darren Waller. That was it. They had their chances. Bills 14, Giants 9. Monday night football, the stars were out. LeBron, Jay-Z, and God knows who else was in the house to watch that game, uh, everybody but uh, Taylor Swift. But as far as the game was concerned, look, I'll just start off with the old high school newspaper clippings. Dak Prescott ran for one touchdown and passed for another as the Cowboys win over the Chargers. Justin Herbert, he was hit a lot last night. Uh, I think the count was eight by the Cowboys defense, and they had a sack and an interception uh, that ended it all. Austin Eckler was back. Only 27 yards rushing. Just didn't uh, didn't happen. I mean, maybe it was that hit that he took uh, during the pregame fight. Uh, somewhat of a fight. He took a, a fist to the, the side of his helmet. That wasn't cool. But the Giants defense, they got out to Prescott. Five sacks, six hitters, hits of their own. But Herbert had the ball last. He's picked off on the final drive. And it doesn't get any easier next week for the Chargers. They travel to Kansas City. Cowboys 20. Chargers 17. Coming up next, Hispanic Heritage Month. We're dedicating these next two shows to Hispanic Heritage Month. Let's go. Many times on this show, um, I've spoken especially around Black History Month, about the beginnings and the origins of the African-American presence in professional football. You know, not just in all sports, you know, but obviously this is an NFL show. But never really think a whole lot about the Hispanic culture, the Hispanic roots that are in the NFL. You know, you have firsts, you have a lot of firsts, and then you can see that there are plenty of players coaches and even execs that have some first and we'll get to those people but for right now this is hispanic well it's passed already hispanic heritage month the next two shows are going to be focused in on their heritage and their beginnings today next week is going to be some other things that we're going to drop on you but in learning this is part of what this show does i'm learning as well as teaching and then opening people's eyes to things that they may or may not have known, you know, or that they may have forgotten about, you know, for some I've been told is like, look, you, you helped me to relive my glory days. <laughs> and, and others is like, man, I had no idea about this, that, and the other. I was like, well, some of this stuff I had no idea about either. And uh, like I said, you have to focus so much. When we're talking about Charles, Charles Fallis back in 1906 be being the, first African-American to play professional football. You got Fritz Pollard uh, going in from the teens to the 20s. And then you fast forward through those 13 terrible years of blacks being shut out. Not all minorities, but blacks being shut out. Um, and then you pick it up in 1946 with Kenny Washington. Well, you know, let me let, let me let me rephrase that. Yes, I'll say there were no minorities playing 
between 1933 and 1945. Okay, let's just put it that way. Between 1934, really, and 1945, there were no blacks. And to, to my knowledge, there were no minorities in that era. Okay, so when, when you look at it, these are the things that I'm learning. Okay, some of these players even playing today, as well as some in the past, I had no idea that they were of Latino descent. A lot of that has to do with their last name. And to some of them, all you have to do is look, Victor Cruz, his mother <laughs> was Hispanic. Okay, Fred Warner, his mother was Hispanic, right? So not everybody's name is Villanueva. Okay, not everybody's name is is that is that name that comes from those countries and so some of them you could just look like okay this guy is not he, he he's he's mixed with something or his both his parents are latino clearly and so sometimes you just look at the name and it'll, it'll tell you but then others if you're not paying attention or if you just don't know you have no idea and i didn't think about some guys even just looking at their names i didn't think about Chris Olave, and honestly, at, at one point, I really didn't think about Fred Warner being from Mexico. I didn't know that. But you have Malcolm Rodriguez. You had the linebacker from the Detroit Lions. Uh, Christian Rodriguez, he's Puerto Rican, running back for the Washington Commanders. Christian Gonzalez, he's Colombian, the cornerback that got just recently got hurt. Great corner coming out of um, Oregon, playing for the Patriots. Uh, Isaiah Pachinko, I didn't actually think think a whole lot about it until I start seeing the commercials. He's of Puerto Rican and Dominican descent. And like I said, with Chris Olave, I didn't think he was Mexican. I had no idea. I, I did not. I really did not. I don't think about Jack Del Rio, who was the one-time head coach and played for the Dallas Cowboys. And now, you know, he's an assistant coach. Uh, I, I didn't think about that. Now, uh, there's some that's just, I mean, it's, it's out there, you know, but I just didn't think. I didn't think about Tony Romo. I, I, I just didn't. I just did not. You know, so a lot of times it's, it's not always in the name. We'll learn about that, too. So uh, in my favorite book, America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written, Jerry Rice, Randy O. Williams, they have the chapter, I think it's chapter 12 to be exact, called A More Colorful Game, A Better, uh, a better Game, not Betterly, A Better Game. And... The subsection in here is called the Latin Quarter. And I'm going to start it off like this. I'm going to read verbatim. All right. Like African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans established a presence early on in the NFL as well. In 1929, Spanish-born running back and punter Jess Rodriguez signed with the Buffalo Bisons while his brother Kelly played for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets the following season. I'll stop right there. Now, supposedly, Jess Rodriguez, who was a running back and punter back in 1929, again for the Bisons, and his brother who played for Frankfurt, they were the first two. Well, Jess was supposed to be the first that actually came through. That's not accurate. The first, his name was Lou Malinay. Lou Malinay. Jess Rodriguez, they thought that he was. They really did. Now, here's another thing. This is according to petty.org, okay? This is actually the school that Maloné went to. And there's an article that was written about him in that. So, as fate, and I'm quoting from the article, as fate came calling, Maloné's granddaughter, Heidi Cadwell, traveled to Florida to visit her grandmother. Her aunts had cleaned the house and filled plastic bags with family records they believed were saved for safe for disposal. Uh, now I, I read another another article which I'll reference here in a second, uh, where supposedly both grandparents were gone, not just Molinay, but his his wife as well, the grandmother. Well, her aunts had cleaned the house and filled plastic bags with family records they believed were safe for disposal. Cadwell sifted through piles and stashed away potentially interesting memorabilia to review when she returned home to New Hampshire. Besides photos of Pops, <clears throat> the plantation in Cuba, she unfolded a piece of paper faded by time, confirming 
he played in the NFL before Rodriguez. Cadwell called the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. They accepted the donation with great interest. Well, there's a little bit more to that. Now, there was another article written by the Ivy League Sports.com, uh, Brad Herzog. This actually, the cleaning took place in 1980. Cadwell was 47 years old at the time. Mario Langoria, he was actually, uh, now let me, let me do this first. In 2000, Pro Football Hall of Fame, you know, they got the call from Miss Catwell. Uh, she wanted to do- donate her grandfather's NFL contract from 1927. And it was confirmed by the Hall of Fame uh, and Hispanic historian Mario Longoria. Now, here's the rub. So, Longoria had written a book after 14 years of studying Latinos in professional football. And he only knew that it went back as far as Jesse Rodriguez. In 1999, this is when Cadwell supposedly gave the call uh, to the Hall of Fame, and she spoke to the collections coordinator, whose name was Jason Atkins, uh, Aiken, excuse me, and let him know that her grandfather was Cuban, because his thing was, uh, it was about his last name, Moliné, was French heritage because of his last name. But he was actually born in Cuba in 1904 in the in the town of Chap- uh, Chapara. Hopefully, I'm saying that correctly. But when she spoke to him, you know, she made that uh that she made that call to Mr. Akins, and then that's when a call actually was made to Longoria, who actually affirmed Molinay's ethnicity. He pretty much said, hey, "Look, this, we're confirming that this is this is." This guy is from Cuba. Um, Ignacio Lou Moliné, excuse me, actually his his entire name was Ignacio Saturnino Moliné. Again, he was born in Cuba in 1904, and he did sign his NFL contract with the Frankfurt Athletic Association, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, on July 20th, 1927. He ended up playing nine games at $50 per game. And he also got 50 for being able to attend practices during the week as well. So Moliné's parents had immigrated to Cuba from Spain and he grew up on their sugar plantation. In high school, he went to petty school and he excelled in basketball, baseball, and football. He ended up going to school at Cornell. 1926, that team that he was on was 6-1-1. One, one. And uh, he was a 5'11", 195-pound fullback. That's important, okay, because that's where the impact comes. Uh, 1926, that same year he was playing for Cornell. Frankfurt, uh, they were defending, they would go in to 1927 as defending champs. They finished the 26th season with a 14-1-1 record. Uh, And uh, he came in, he signed the contract to play for him. And Frankfurt at that time was kind of on his way down. Just remember that there were there were a lot of teams, and if you weren't making money, whether you were good or not, did not mean you had staying power. Did not. Didn't mean you was going to stick around. And uh, as far as his play, Mullinay scored his lone NFL touchdown on a one-yard run against Buffalo, the team that Jess Rodriguez would eventually play for. And uh, that was in a 23-0 win for Frankfurt. Again, nine games he played, he started two. Didn't have a whole lot of yards, not a lot of hoopla. He only played a single season. 75 yards on the ground, he threw for 35 more. And the team actually finished in 18 games, six, nine, and three. Now, Frankfurt, they had never had a losing season before that year. Uh, And uh, like I said, they was one of the teams that would eventually fold. By 1931, they were gone. Molinay actually went back to Cornell to finish his degree and during his junior year his parents had died while he was in school he ended up going back to cuba so after his you know post football career he goes back finishes degree he becomes a mechanical engineer and the family did not know really a whole lot about his playing days past him being at cornell that's it and the contract of course now is on display in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Now, what was the impact? The impact was positioning, okay? What do we talk about when we talk about 
African-Americans, you know, playing certain positions, you know, thinking positions or things like that. Uh, you know, it was it was quarterbacks and things. So it was restricted to playing certain positions. There were not a lot of restrictions uh, when we when it came to even Hispanics, because a lot of Hispanics, like I said, you think about them. And even when I've read, it was about them kicking and being linemen. Clearly, that's not the case. You can't restrict anybody. People could play any position that you want to. It doesn't matter where they're from or what color they are, right? Uh, but a lot has changed. And during Molinay's time, you know, the glory position at the day, there was no quarterback as we know it. Remember that. There, there was no real quarterback. Passing was actually illegal until you go further into, you know, the, uh, the early 30s and, and late 20s. So it wasn't about dropping back and throwing the football or calling the plays and all that. The glory position was playing fullback or halfback. They were actually the ones that was doing the throwing. And that's what Mullinay played. And during his time being a halfback in the NFL, that went on to other great Hispanic players that would follow him. They played that same position. Follow me and I will bless you. So as far as those Rodriguez brothers, Jesse and Kelly, Born in Spain, their father, uh, Fabriciano, he was one of those guys that came over on the boat. Ellis Island in 1911 with $30 in his pocket. His sons would be guys that would play in the NFL. That I mean, that was pretty good. They didn't play very long, but they played. Uh, again, Jess Rodriguez played for the Buffalo Bisons, and Kelly played for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets in 1930. Uh, then you go to another great player, well, not great player, but to another Hispanic player. He actually, uh, Waldo Don Carlos, Drake, out of Drake College University. First team, all Missouri Valley, played both ways, offensive and defense. He took those same playing ways to the NFL for a year. Uh, he was the first Latin player on a championship team, playing for Curly Lambeau's 1931 Green Bay Packers. They were, they were working on their third championship in a row, and he played both ways, 12 games. He started six times, and he actually played center on offense. So why just one season, though? According to the Green Bay Press-Gazette, he, he had went to Curly Lambeau and told his head coach, look, I'm probably going to retire after this next season. Keep this in mind. Pro football was not it, Okay. College football was hit. I always have to say that just in case there's somebody listening that doesn't understand that. Football was not glory, okay? It was cool, but it's it's kind of like having a part-time job. This ain't the real thing I'm doing. So he's like, I'm going to retire. After one, after two years, I'm going to retire. Uh, you know, but Curly said, all right, you know what? Don't even worry about it. He ended up releasing him. So, <laughs> uh, Don Carlos ended up going back to Drake. He finished his his degree. Uh, his degree. Don Carlos ends up going back to Drake. He finishes his degree. And actually, I read where he became a small town lawyer. That's pretty good. Then there's Joe Aguirre. Talk about guys who. How can I say that? Uh, talk about guys that were minorities. And let's just be real. When you have a, a owner such as George Preston Marshall, maybe he just didn't. I'm just being honest. Maybe he just didn't like black play, players. He sure had some Hispanics on his team. Okay, Joe Aguirre was a 6'4", 225 pound receiver, or end if you want to call it that back then. And he was actually the first Hispanic that was drafted, ninth round by Washington. Played four years with Washington. He was an all-pro, actually, in 1944. Uh, and then he ended up uh, going his last four years with the AAFC. He played for the L.A. Dons. In the eight years that he played professional football, he caught 163 passes. He had over 2,200 yards, and he scored 30 touchdowns. So you had some guys that could play. Didn't matter what color they were. I'm going to butcher this last name, all right? I'm just going to be honest with you. Eddie Sands, hopefully that's the way that you say the last name. I'm, I was trying to say it right. Eddie Sands, that's S-A-E-N-Z. 
He was a fit. He was the second player to be drafted into the NFL. 15th round of the 1945 draft. He played also with Washington six years. They called him Tortilla. All right. I mean, do it that with you, what you will. Of course, he was Mexican. Uh, and he was a dynamite kickoff and punt returner. Really was a great kickoff returner. Um, and this guy, I mean, his his career was actually cut short with injury in his six years. But he actually, in 1947, like I said, he was great. He had like, what, uh, he averaged 27 and a half yards per kickoff return. And he also had two touchdown returns. So, I mean, that was pretty good. That's pretty good. But he 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 actually died early too. I think he was only forty seven years old when he passed away. Um, he was a stunt man in movies. <laughs> he was, if you look up his IMDb, he was a stunt man. And so hopefully that's not what happened to him. I could not find anywhere that told you exactly what happened to this man, why he died. Not a whole lot. I need to get get that book that was written by Longoria because he does have a book out there. Uh, and then. These next two, though, they were really, really great players in their day. And obviously, the first two I'm getting ready to talk about are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The first one is the first Hispanic to be to make it into the hall. All right. Steve Van Buren. I had no idea that Steve Van Buren and then the other Tom Fears, great receiver for the Rams. I did not know that both of these men were of Hispanic Hair, they had Hispanic heritage. I had no idea. Steve Van Buren, born in Honduras. Tom Fears, born in Guadalajara, Mexico. I had no idea. I did not know. Fears, I found out about last year. Van Buren, I found out last week. Okay, so I mean, I had no idea. Uh, Van Buren, he has a great story, and I think I might have to break it down one day. But 6'1, 205 pound guy that could run the 100 in 9.8 seconds. Now, I talked about a Bears running back, George McAfee, that's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This guy was six foot, 165 pounds, and can run the exact same. This big bull out of LSU, that's crazy. That is, that is nutty. Um, Van Buren actually didn't even make his high school team because he was too small. He was a buck 25 in, in high school. And I think once he got some more pounds on him, yeah, he ended up, by the time he graduated, earned a scholarship to play at LSU but he was a first round selection by Philadelphia fifth overall and uh, in 1944 played eight years for the Eagles first team all NFL his first six seasons 1945 he won the triple crown what's that well he led the NFL in rushing scoring and in kickoff returns uh, he led the NFL in rushing four times he was the first Hispanic to lead the NFL in the statistic. And at the time when he first got in the league, you know, it was what, punt return yards? Uh, then he was the first to rush for 10-plus touchdowns. The first to have multiple 1,000-yard seasons. Unfortunately, his career was derailed by injury. 1950, he had a toe injury he had surgery on. All right, check. 1951, he hurt his ribs. Uh, but then in camp, he tore up his knee. And, his, and that, that was it. Tore up his knee. Retired as the NFL's all-time leading rusher with 5,860 yards. He scored 69 touchdowns rushing. And he was ended up being the first Hispanic assistant coach in NFL history the next year in 1952 for the Philadelphia Eagles. In 1968 is when he was put into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. First Hispanic to, 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 be, to enter the hall. Awesome. Tom Fears, again. Guadalajara, Mexico. He went to school, Santa Clara, and then he took a break because he he was drafted into the war. I think he wanted to fly. Uh, he wanted to fly jets or airplanes or whatever. And uh, in World War II, he comes back. He finishes his college career with UCLA. Then he's drafted as a defensive back, I think, back in 1945. And the Rams flip him to a wide receiver. He signs with the Rams in 47. He joins up with them in 1948. Plays nine years, sets several records, including um, receptions in a season. 77 in 1949, and he breaks his own record with, and has 84 in 1950. In 1951, he's an NFL champion. The first championship they won in L.A. 
All right, they won their first one in 45 when they were the, the Cleveland Rams. And at that time, they were looking at him then. So that was that was pretty wild. And he also had a special record in my heart, 18 receptions against Green Bay. That's the record that Terrell Owens broke when he caught 20 balls against the Bears on Jerry Rice Day. I'm still not happy about that. I'm still not. Led the NFL in receptions three times. Uh, twice had a thousand yards receiving. He's one of those early guys that, that were a thousand yard threats. I played with the Rams from 48 to 56. Finishes his NFL career 400 receptions, 5,397 yards, and 38 touchdowns. He became the second Hispanic to become an NFL assistant coach. 1959, he's working for Vince Lombardi in the Packers. He was the wide receivers coach. Did the same job, you know, in other locations before coming back to the Packers, I think. Uh, at one, well, he was with the Packers. Then he went, he goes to L.A. And then he goes back to the Packers. And then he goes to Atlanta. But he became the first head coach. First Hispanic head coach. Went the uh, When they hired him in New Orleans to coach the Saints. He was the coach from 1967 to 1970. Wasn't great, but still, barriers were broken. Read about this this last guy, Ricardo Rick Caceres. I I I, I didn't didn't even think about him being uh, being a Spanish descent. Did not know. He's got Italian roots too. Born in uh, in Temple, Florida. Father is mur- murdered at, when he was seven years old. He and his mother they moved to New Jersey. By the time he goes back to Tampa, yeah, that's where he lived to the day he died. But goes back to Tampa, and in high school. He excelled in football, basketball, baseball, and track. 6'3", 230-pound fullback. He was drafted in the second round out of the University of Florida by the Chicago Bears in 1954. Joins up with George Hallis and the gang in 1955. His second year, second year, uh, well, let's just say his first year, his first carry, 81-yard touchdown. Who's going to tackle that big joke? You know, like, seriously. Uh, His first five years were phenomenal. You know, he's a pro bowler the first five years. uh, And um, and he led the league in rushing in 1956. And he also uh, led the league rushing yards, touchdowns, and attempts. Okay? 1,126 yards that he rushed for in 1956. At the time, they were the second most all-time in NFL history. Five-time Pro Bowler his first five years. Played 10 years with Chicago. Ends up getting traded to Washington. And then he finishes his career with the expansion Miami Dolphins. And uh, his his career, 5,700 yards. Almost 5,800 yards for his career. Ran for 48 rushing touchdowns and scored 11 times uh, receiving. And at this point right now, fourth on the Bears' all-time rush list. Behind only, of course, Walter Payton. Matt Forte and Neil Anderson. Good company. Neil Anderson, uh, UF alum, University of Florida alum. So yeah, I mean, it, it, that, was, that was some great things there. Well, let me let me read you uh, this. I just want to throw this in about Steve Van Buren, according to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the article they have on him. Again, he was born in Honduras. It's about opportunities, right? And people see you special, they want to give you opportunities. Born in Honduras, Van Buren was orphaned when he was very young again, sent to New Orleans to live with his grandparents. Again, he failed to make his high school football team as a 125-pound sophomore. But as a senior, played well enough to win a scholarship to LSU. His senior In his senior season, Van Buren rushed for 832 yards, encouraged by his coach, LSU coach Bernie Moore, the Eagles selected him as their top pick in the draft. They ended up with a Pro Football Hall of Famer. Pro Football Hall of Famer. Now, going forward, after Caceres, uh, going into those 1960s, heading into the 70s, there were many other prominent Hispanic players who were among the best in the game that would lead their teams to Super Bowls on the field and wearing the whistle. I went long today. That's it. References thanks to a lot. I got a lot. ESPN.com, ProFootballReference.com, ProFootballHallOfFame.com, ESPN.com. This one written by Eric Gomez. 
Mexico Rider, September 29, 2016, a pioneer largely forgotten. Ignacio Moline was the NFL's first Hispanic player. Also, again, Petty.org alumni. Ignacio Saturnino Moline, class of 23, almost a forgotten footnote in professional football history. I got another one. New York Times, Steve Van Buren, 91, dies, found Hall of Fame halfback. This one written. Frank Litsky, August 24th, 2012, day after my birthday. Uh, also, we have uh, another New York Times one. Rick Caceres, 82, a bear who got yards with grit. This one written, William Yardley, September 17th, 2013, <laughs> a year later. Uh, they both passed away in consecutive years. That's wild. Sportskeeda.com. Who was the first Hispanic player in the NFL? This one written by Habib. Hopefully I say your name right, Habib. Timlin. This one was modified October 6, 2022. Also, the College Football Hall of Fame. Waldo Don Carlos. Drake University Hispanic Heritage Month. September 28, 2022. And also IvyLeagueSports.com. Pigskin pioneer remembered Brad Herzog, Cornell Alumni Magazine, September 15th, 2023. And finally, my eyes, ears, and brain. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. Again, I am your host, Michael Newell Jr. This show is presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media. Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Check us out on bellyupsports.com and our home of Megaphone. Hey. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. You better, you know, listen to my show on that or I'll find your house. Also, you can find the other Belly Up family on YouTube. I'll get there one day. I'm out.